Mark. Gospel of Mark. Uh, I don't know about you. Um, I've been following him for 52 years now. And I find Jesus more interesting and more compelling. I know all the theological stuff. I know he's the son of God. I get all that. Uh, um, third person, or, the, you know, the, the, which person of the Trinity? Second person of the Trinity? I don't know. I'm not very theological. Uh, I know he's in the Trinity there somewhere. Uh, I know all that stuff. But I'm telling you, I find him more interesting and more compelling and more disturbing. That's another uniqueness of Mark. We have the disturbing presence of Jesus. Jesus are actually, people are actually afraid of Jesus in Mark. I find that interesting. I find his life so interesting. And I think that's what we need. I, I'm sorry, I don't have like a cool men's conference talk, you know, with uh, any good jokes. My wife's... Uh, New Year's resolution for me was to clean up my humor, so I don't, I don't have any moderately good jokes that I could tell at just a men's conference, and she took all the really funny memes off my phone, so I don't have that working for me. I just want to talk about him. That's all I got. That's all I got, because I think that's all we need. We, we need to fall back in love with the person of Jesus. I think American Christianity is, is Pauline. There's nothing wrong with Paul. I know that's the holy, you know, the holy God's holy word. Uh, I get that. I'll take a bullet for the authority of Paul. But I mean, we are called Christians for a reason. I mean, what's Paul doing? Paul is dealing with problems in churches, right? We make this systematic theology about Paul, and then we argue about it, and we, churches divide up. I don't know. When was the last church that divided up over the divinity of Jesus? I, I, I don't know. So I'll stop. I'll stop blathering about that. So let's, let's flee to the life of Jesus, uh, and let's learn to ask better questions about his life. How about this question? What's his favorite Bible verse? What's his favorite Bible verse? Well, he gets asked, he, he's actually asked that in Mark, in Mark 7. Um, and, and it happens more than once in the Gospels. I think it's Mark 7. Oh, you should be scared. I should know this. No, it's Mark 12. Yes, I know. I've written books on Mark. I know. I know Mark. Oh, this is, don't look, don't go there. Let me read it. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. They just, the Sadducees have just asked this lame question about the resurrection, which they don't believe in anyway. And he has hoodwinked them. He always does. That's one of the really cool things about Jesus. He always humiliates people, which I think is pretty cool. I wish I could do that. Um, but now this teacher of the law comes in. One of, one of the things, ideas I'd like to plan in your head is not all the Pharisees are bad. Not all the teachers of the law are bad. In fact, the leadership of the early church was Pharisaic. Paul's a Pharisee. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, they're Pharisees. We have a group of Pharisees who are actually the follower of my favorite rabbi, a man named Hillel, who was very Christ-like. And, and, uh, uh, and this, this is not a conflict story. This guy and Jesus kind of resonate with each other. So this Pharisee sees that he's humiliated the Sadducees. Of course, he likes that. So one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And this is a common thing they debate about. They still debate about this in Judaism. The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. 
Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Vehaavta et Adonai Eloheka, Bekol Levavka, Yvkol Leveshka, Ukol Meodecha. That's Jesus' favorite verse. It's called the Shema. If you ask a, a Jewish person, what's the first commandment? The first commandment is not have no other gods before me. The first commandment is listen. Shema. Listen, hear, understand. When Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him shema. It's all about listening. If you look, we, we won't go into the, in, into the shema, but it's got two parts. Part one begins with listen. Part two begins with love. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The great creed, creed of monotheism. Okay? Listen. Part two, love the Lord with all your love, all your heart, with all your nefesh, all your soul, with all your maod, muchness. It can't even translate it. It's hard to translate. So listen and love. The best way to love God is to listen to him. That's what the Shema says. In fact, the best way to love anybody is to listen to him. You really want to love your wife? Stop doing things for her. And listen to her. Really, really want to love your kids? Stop buying them things. And listen to them. Because the best way to love anybody is to listen to them. Open the door of your life to them and really listen to them. Find out what hurts them. You really want to know somebody? Find out what hurts them. Right? So Jesus' favorite verse is the Shema. In another place, he's asked, what the most important verse is. He asked the, the teacher, he goes, I don't know, what do you think? And the teacher responds with the Shema, and Jesus says, right. Another place, another person asked him this question, and he quotes the second half of the Shema. So at least three times when this question comes up, this is his answer. So uh, I won't, won't be dogmatic about this. Don't ever be dogmatic about what the Bible's not dogmatic about. But I like the idea that this is Jesus' favorite verse when people ask him what's the most important one, this is the one. You love God by listening to him. Jesus spends a lot of time in the Gospels listening to God, especially in Mark, uh, all night sometimes. Um, so how do we do that, though? How do we love, how do we, how do we bring all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our muchness to listening to God? How do we, what integrates us so that we can listen to God that way? Um, and my answer is your imagination. The imagination is what integrates you. It's, it's the bridge between your heart and your mind and your soul and your muchness. And the reason I believe this, and again, I won't be dogmatic about it because the Bible's not dogmatic about it, but the reason I believe this is the Bible is written to your imagination. It targets your imagination. I think God knows if he can get our imaginations, he's going to get all of our hearts and all of our minds. And we could talk about the apocalyptic literature and the visions of the prophets. We could talk about the poetry of the Psalms, the wisdom books. But my one example comes from the life of Jesus. I'm a pointy-headed fundamentalist, y'all. I think Jesus is perfect. I think everything he said is perfect. I think when he didn't say something, it was the perfect time not to say something. I will go as far with the perfection of Jesus as you want to go. Okay? And... How does Jesus teach? If, if he teaches the perfect way, how does he teach? He teaches with parables, right? He does not teach didactically. He doesn't say, point one, point two, point three, Peter, write this down. It's going to be on a test later. What does he do? 
He steps up. Look, look for it. He steps up, never introduces him. No introduction. A man was going down a road and fell into the hands of men of violence who beat him and left him for dead. Uh, the longest parable, I've timed him, the longest parable is a minute and 53 seconds. And then he'll, not every time, but he'll end by saying, let he who has ears to hear, Shema, let him hear. And that's Jesus' way of saying, if you don't engage with your imagination, you are not going to get this because I'm not going to explain it to you. He explains the parables one time, privately, to the disciples. He gives the seed parables in Mark, right? He's about to send them out to sow the seed, and he knows they don't get this yet. So he takes them aside privately and says, well, this is what the soil means, and this is what the seed means, and, and that's the only time we ever have him explaining things privately. He teaches in a way that forces you to use your imagination. If you don't engage, you're not going to get it. It's the greatest strength of his teaching. It's the greatest weakness of his teaching. Because my guess is, well, like today, there's a lot of people that won't engage, right? You think, yeah, I need some book to tell me what it means, or I need a pastor or some buffoon like me to tell you what it means. That's not how it works, y'all. That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit is in us. Engage, we engage with the Word of God, and you see things that I'll never see. That's why I love coming together as in a group and studying the Word together because you'll, you'll see things that I'll never see. And I love that, that kind of thing. Sidebar. If I, if I stand here, it's a sidebar. It means it's not going to be on the test. I'm, uh, I'm up in Pennsylvania at this little Mennonite church, and I'm talking about Caesarea Philippi and blah, 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 what a pagan place it is that Jesus goes. I still don't understand why he went up there. 25 miles he walks up there to ask Peter the question, who do men say that I am? Caesarea Philippi confession. And I'm talking about the temple of Pan and the temple of the dancing goats and blah, 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 all this stuff about what a pagan temple, uh, a city of pagan temples Caesarea Philippi is. And this Mennonite guy, sweet guy, his name's Adam. He's, he's even taller than you, okay? He's a super tall guy, like seven feet tall. He said, wait a minute. He said, you're telling me Jesus went to a town full of pagan temples? I said, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. He said, and the only temple he ever tore up was his own? Isn't that brilliant? Yeah, that's what I said. He, he, I never saw that. See, that's why we get together and you see things I'll never see. We come together as a, as a, you know, around the Word of God. So we engage with our imaginations. That's we got to love God by listening to Him. And we got to engage our imagination. And how do I do that? Let me just teach you how I do that because there are probably lots of ways to do it. First thing I do is I ask who the author is, and we'll talk about who Mark is. Who is the author? We know virtually nothing about Matthew. We know a lot about Mark, know a lot about John, know a lot about Luke. Matthew is the one that's hard to engage with this way. So you ask who's the author. Secondly, you ask what the life situation is. What, who's, who is Mark writing to? What situation is he writing to? And we know pretty well what Mark is writing to. So we, we, we look at that. We listen to other things like the structure, uh, the structure of the book, other things we won't get into. But basically, we listen to the author's voice. Uh, I, I can teach you just a, a very few simple uh, ideas about each one of the Gospels. And you'll hear a verse and you'll go, well, that sounds like Luke. If it's a widow's story, it's Luke because he's interested in widow stories. Um, if it's a story that has the word immediately in it, it's Mark. Because that's his favorite word, immediately, uthos. Um, 
If it's a story where Jesus says something and the, the, the immediate response of the crowds, they don't understand, that's John. That's what John does. Every time Jesus says something significant in John, the people have no idea what he's talking about. Okay, that's John. So it's not, it's not really hard. It's not really hard to do that. So, but what I want to do is engage with Mark this way a little bit, okay? And I'd encourage you this weekend to read through Mark. It'll take you about a minute and 50, I mean, an hour and 50-some-odd minutes, depending on how fast you read. And read fast. Don't be spiritual and read two words and stop and pray. Just go. Read. Zoom. You know, you know this material. And if you read big blocks of Scripture, you will see things you've never seen before. Trust me. You read a whole book at a time, and all of a sudden, well, wait, I heard that like two, two chapters ago. And, you read, and Mark is especially, he loves to bookend things. Um, one of my favorite bookends in Mark is uh, in three, between 3 and 6. There's a statement he makes. So many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat. Okay, he says that twice in chapter 3 and chapter 6. That's a bookend. If you haven't read three chapters, you're not going to see that. And that's a uniqueness of Mark. Mark's, Jesus' ministry from chapter 1, we're going to see this. We're going to look at chapter 1. Jesus' ministry is covered up with people from, from chapter 1 in Mark, and that's another uniqueness. If, if it's a story about Jesus trying to get away from the crowd, it's Mark. Only in Mark does Jesus say, have a boat ready so the people don't push me into the lake. You've heard those sermons where Jesus preaches from the bow of the boat because of the, uh, the, uh, the uh, effect of the lake. What's the audiology? What's the acoustics? The acoustics is better. No, he preaches from a boat because they're pushing him into the lake. That's Mark. He's covered up with people from chapter 1. He's fleeing to the wilderness from chapter 1. He's crisscrossing the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee to get away from the crowds. And if you've been to the Sea of Galilee, you know that that doesn't work because the lake's so small. He gets in a boat, go across the lake. What do they do? They walk around the shore, and they're waiting for him when he gets there. Okay? That doesn't work for Jesus. So, uh, so who is Mark? Uh, briefly, briefly. Um, well, he's an extraordinary man. Two, two of the gospel writers' mothers were followers of Jesus. You know that? John and Mark's mothers were followers of Jesus. Two of the gospel writers were followers of, of Paul. Luke and Mark were both followers of Paul. And we think of these four gospel writers as just these names out there. These, were, these guys were uh, you know, part, uh, part of the movement, early part of the movement. And Mark, I think, is, is the key. His, his house, when Peter gets busted out of prison in Acts 12, he goes to Mark's house. That's the guy who wrote this gospel, y'all. He goes to Mark's house. In fact, that's the first time we hear Mark's name. So Mark's mother was one of the early followers of Jesus. Um, I'm convinced, uh, and my, you know, my academic reason, my academic reason is I really want it to be this way, but I'm convinced that the Lord's Supper happened at Mark's house. I'm convinced that the, when Jesus said, follow the, the man who has the water jar, I'm, I'm positive that's Mark. And my, my, positive, my positivity comes from the fact that I really want it to be that way. Yeah. I'll just be honest with you. You know, scholars won't be honest with you like that, but I don't have a PhD. I got nothing to lose. I'm a banjo player. I got nothing to lose. Uh, the, 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 the person in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the young man that has the sheet wrapped around him, and they grab him, and he spins away naked. Uh, when I'm doing high school or junior high groups, I'll say, look, you can read all the other Gospels. But don't read Mark. There's nudity in it. 
okay? And I'll hear, right? I'm convinced that's Mark, right? Mark lives in Jerusalem. His, his mother's house is there, uh, fairly wealthy. And the soldiers are on their way to Gethsemane, and they go by Mark's house. And he's lying in bed with a sheet wrapped around. He jumps up to run and warn Jesus, and he gets there late. And, uh, and uh, we have the famous nude scene of Mark. So his mother's a follower of Jesus. Okay, get this, y'all. His, he's the cousin or the nephew of Barnabas. Do you know that? That's Colossians 4.10. Barnabas, uh, here's a great bar bet. If you want to always win a, a, a bet, this is a perfect bet for you. I probably shouldn't have said bar, should I? Sorry. Don't tell my wife. Um, who's responsible for over half of the New Testament? Nope. 24%. See? Luke, up oh, 26%. Barnabas. If it, wasn't Barnab- if it wasn't for Barnabas, we wouldn't have Paul, Right? When no one else believed in Paul, Barnabas believed in Paul. Barnabas, John Stott says, Barnabas Barnabas believes in the work that God is doing in a man. How about Mark? When Paul doesn't believe in Mark, who believes in Mark? Barnabas, his uncle, does. So there's a a bet in whatever situation you you find yourself in. You'll always win that bet. See, who's responsible for over half of the New Testament? Barnabas. Barnabas. I don't know, it's, it's, it was funnier earlier. Uh, so, I mean, Barnabas is, he's a, he's a nephew of Barnabas. And when Paul, you know, when, when Paul and Barnabas go on their first, those first relief missions, they take Mark with them. And they get to Perga. And Mark, I mean, he's a young guy. He wants to go home. He don't want to go up in the mountains. And Paul doesn't like that, does he? So his, his mother's an early follower of Jesus. His, his, Barnabas is his uncle. He's a follower of Paul. Um, he travels with Paul, uh, but most importantly, Mark is a disciple of Peter. That's what you got to know about Mark. His closest connection is to Peter. Peter calls him my son in 1 Peter. Those who are in Rome greet you, as does my son, Mark. Some people believe that means that Peter actually led Mark uh, to the Lord and a, a lot of our early church witnesses tell us that, and I won't look at the references, but if you're interested, I can show them to you. The early, members of the early church, they go to Mark and they say, would you please write down Peter's account of the life of Jesus for us? So all of these church historians, the first century ones, the early second century ones, all agree that the gospel of Mark is really Peter's gospel. Mark is his disciple. And Peter, uh, Peter is his, his, uh, his source, okay? So that's who Mark is. So Peter is behind the gospel of Mark. Um, in, in 2 Peter 1.15, which is really Peter's last will and testament, Peter says, I've done everything possible to make sure that after my departure, you'll we'll be re- able to remember these things. You know that verse? Peter says, I've done everything possible so that after I'm gone, because he knows he's going to die. I've done everything possible to make sure that after I'm gone, you'll be able to remember these things. He's talking about him and Mark working on this gospel together, see? Uh, So let's talk about the life situation quickly, quickly. Um, The life situation of Mark is the gospel that we we know most uh, clearly, the life situation of Mark. And it is the first gospel written, and it was written after the fire in Rome. Uh, We know that Peter and and Paul are, we're pretty certain that they're both there. 
And in 64, um, Nero, who is a nut, he's building a city, uh, he's building a, 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 a house that covers a third of the city called the Golden Palace. There's a hallway in this palace that's a mile long. He's nuts. There's a statue of him that's like 120 feet tall. It's called the Colossus. You know the Colosseum in Rome? It's named after that statue of Nero. So Nero is, is crazy. Well, he, he starts a fire. He sets Rome on fire to clear out the slums so he can expand his house. Eleven of the 14 districts of Rome burn to the ground. And everybody realizes it's Nero that set that fire. And Tacitus, a very reliable Roman historian, says Nero decided he needed to find a scapegoat. And so he blamed the Christians. Everybody hated them anyway, right? Very small Christian community in Rome. And this, this is a very important date for us to know. There's like three dates we need to know. We need to know 70 A.D. We need, we need to know 64 because that's the fire in Rome, and that's the first time we were persecuted as Christians. Uh, Tacitus tells us that Nero gives a party in the gardens of Messinus, and when it gets dark, he lines the garden with crosses with, cru with Christians hanging on them, and he sets them on fire to, pro to provide light for his party. Now wrap your mind around that. That is the life situation of the first readers of the Gospel of Mark. That's where Mark, uh, that's who Mark is writing to, to people who are suffering persecution in Rome. And Mark wants you to know, you're not going to suffer anything that Jesus hasn't suffered. That's the point of Mark. Only Mark tells us that Jesus' mother and brothers thought he was out of his mind. Remember that, chapter 3? Only Mark tells you that story. Why do you think he told you that story? What are his first readers hearing? You must be out of your mind. A, a carpenter from Nazareth? A Jew? You're going to give your life for that guy? You're crazy. You're crazier than Nero. Mark uh, tells the story of, uh, we're going to look at it, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Mark is not interested in this story. You know, the threefold temptation? It's not there. He's not interested in that. He tells you one thing that the other Gospels don't tell you. He says when Jesus was in the wilderness, he was with the wild beasts. Now, why do you think only Mark tells you that story? What is happening to his first hearers? They are being thrown to wild beasts in the arena when they're under the persecution of Nero. Mark wants you to know you're not going to suffer anything that Jesus hasn't already suffered. Very important. So that's the life situation of Mark. So here's Mark's very important person connected with Peter. And uh, the life situation uh, is persecution. My mentor, Bill Lane, called it a pamphlet for hard times. Uh, if you want to read his uh, like 600-page commentary, you knock yourself out. Um, so let's, let's look at uh, chapter 1. I'm okay time-wise? I mean, I'm going to go real quick. I talk fast. Go chapter 1. Chapter 1 just happens to be the table of contents. How cool is that? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark, the structure of Mark. Remember, we listened to the structure. Mark has two parts. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, part 1 ends when Peter makes his confession that you are the Christ. 
the end of part two is when of all persons, a Roman centurion says, surely this man is the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the, the ministry of Jesus always begins with John the Baptist, and, uh, and, uh, and obviously it does in Mark as well. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Now, how do you do that? How do you prepare the way for Jesus? You make people aware of their sin, right? You make them repent. And what do we see in the Gospels? We have all these people coming to Jesus and falling at his feet. In Luke 5, when Peter falls down in front of Jesus and says, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. Why do you think he says that? He started the preaching of John the Baptist. The sinful woman who comes and, and wets Jesus' feet with her tears. Why do you think she's, where'd she get that idea from? John the Baptist. See, that's how you prepare the way. And he did a really good job, right? He did a really good job. He made a big splash. Thank you. A voice of one calling in the desert. And that, that phrase in the desert is the major, probably the major theme of Mark. Uh, the wilderness, everything. This is unique to Mark. Everything significant that happens in Mark happens in the wilderness. In the wilderness. Okay. Eremos tapas is the Greek word. Unfortunately, translations will translate it four or five different ways. So you, you, you lose the feel for the fact that this is a term that he keeps using. Uthos is the same way immediately, just so it doesn't sound dumb. They, they translate it four or five different ways, and you don't realize this is a really important word to Mark. So, so we, sometimes we have to do our homework to, to engage with our imagination. So a voice of one calling, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So John came baptizing in the desert. See, it happens over and over. Um, preaching repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. This is a new, completely new idea. Okay, sidebar. We need to get this. Jesus' ministry, Jesus is born into, and Jesus' ministry begins in a very fragmented world. Now, this isn't, this isn't a Christian scholar. This is a Jewish scholar, Isaiah Gaffney, who's one of the great Jewish scholars. He said in the first century, we don't have Judaism. We have Judaisms. And if you think about it, the gospel, the gospel is accurate when it doesn't know it's being accurate. The gospel reflects this. I mean, think about it. We got Sadducees. We got Pharisees. We got seven different kinds of Pharisees in two big schools. They don't agree on anything. We got Essenes. We got Herodians. Now we got followers of John the Baptist. No one agrees on canon. Do you know that? Law, prophets, writings. That doesn't happen until after 70 AD. No one, no one knows about, no one agrees on resurrection. We know that from the Gospels, right? No one agrees on angels. No one agrees on anything. And into this confusion, into these Judaisms, comes the ministry of Jesus. Yeah, into all that confusion, all this debate, what's the greatest commandment? Blah, 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 blah. Here comes this person. And certainly he's got great teaching, but he is not an answer man, right? He gives himself. And that's how he still works. If you want him to be an, uh, your answer man, good luck with that. He's not here to give you answers. He's here to give you himself. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to skip on down. Uh, so basically, Jesus comes and he's, he's baptized by John. Um, 
And if you, if you go to, to Israel, this is clearer. Uh, the Jordan River at this point is flowing through the desert. So what happens is Jesus is baptized, and he turns around, and there's the wilderness. This is one story. This is another reason that you need to read big blocks. The baptism and the temptation are one story. Don't divide those up in your head. Because what happens in the, in the baptism, what, is, what does God say? You're my son. It's a declaration of the sonship of Jesus. God, who is the perfect father, says everything Jesus needs to hear. I love you. You're my son, and I'm well pleased with you. If you, if you have children, especially if you have sons, they need to hear that every day. I love you, and I'm pleased with you, and you're my son. So Jesus hears this. In the temptation, what does Satan say? If you're the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God, do it's an attack on Jesus' sonship. And let me tell you, he's still about that, y'all. He is still attacking our identities as sons. Sons of the Father. That's who I am. Jesus defines me. He tells me who I am. The world doesn't tell, well, the world tells me who I am, but it's wrong, right? So, so let's, let's read the temptation. Um, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up um, out of the water, he saw heaven torn open and the spirit descend on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my son whom i love with you i'm well pleased at once the spirit drove it's the same word that's used for jesus driving out demons the spirit drives jesus into the desert there's that phrase again in the wilderness eramos tapas everything significant in mark happens in the wilderness okay he drove him to the wilderness, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. No threefold temptation, no turn the stones into bread, no fall down before me and worship. Mark leaves that out. What you heard is just what he says. He was with the wild animals. He was with the wild beasts. Okay, let me skip on down because I want to be, I want to be, I feel the energy kind of going down in the room, so I want to be sensitive to that. Um, Let's go to verse 29. Uh, as soon as they left the synagogue, uh, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. And if you ever go to Israel, go to Capernaum. If we have a holy place, Christians, it's Capernaum, in my opinion, because Peter's house is Peter's house. And that's where Jesus relocated. When the, when the New Testament speaks of his own town, with one exception, it's talking about Capernaum. His own town isn't Nazareth anymore. It's Capernaum. So go there. It's a very cool place. The great pomegranate juice stand right at, on the outside as you're coming in. So get your big glass of pomegranate juice and then walk around Capernaum. Um, so he leave, he, they leave the synagogue, and the foundations of the synagogue are still there, by the way. Uh, they go with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. They told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. We're going to talk about the miracles of Jesus tomorrow, so I'm not going to get into that. Uh, that evening after sunset, people, uh, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town, there's like 3,000 people who live in Capernaum at this point. Uh, the whole town gathered at the door. Jesus healed many with various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak 
because they knew who he was. He does not want the confession of who he is being heard from the lips of demons. And there's another interesting thing, and we'll talk about this tomorrow in Mark, and that is Jesus heals people. Six, uh, he, he does like 20, 19 or 20 miracles. Six times he'll say, please don't tell anybody I did that. It's called the Messianic Secret. Please don't tell anybody I did that. Now, we'll talk about that tomorrow, so I'll leave that there. So when you're reading Mark tonight, your roommate is snoring so loud that you can't sleep, and you're reading Mark tonight. Look for that. Verse 35, this is what I want to, I want to focus in, and we're, we're kind of wrapping up here. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, this is a very specific time uh, in Judaism. Um, you don't have a Rolex or alarm clock. You know how you know? It's called deep dawn. You know how you know it's deep dawn? You have a black thread and a blue thread. The moment when it's light enough that you can tell the difference between the black and the blue, it's morning. Isn't that cool? So that's how you do it, if you're interested. Full of meaningless trivia. So very early in the morning, when you could just see the difference between the black thread and the blue thread, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. It's the same word, a desert place, same, same term. Everything significant in Mark's happens in the wilderness. But here, NIV doesn't, you know, they want it to read smoothly. So they, they, they miss that. So he went off to the, to the desert, to the wilderness, where he prayed. Okay, remember who the source of Mark is. This is how the, the disciples are referred to in Mark. Simon and his companions. That's the 12 in Mark. Can you hear that Simon is the source of this story? Simon and his companions went to look for him. When they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone's looking for you. This is awesome. You're a hit. The whole town. This is going to be great. Jesus replied, Let's go somewhere else to the nearby village so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he hasn't really come to do miracles. We're going to look at this tomorrow. He does miracles, but they kind of work against him. He's covered up with people who just want miracles, and they're not interested in what he says. We'll see that tomorrow. That's why he's saying, please don't tell anybody I did that. Because what happens? They never obey. How can you not tell, right? And the next scene shows that he's so covered up with people that nobody's listening, and he has to flee to the wilderness. That's Mark. That's what Mark is interested in. That's what Peter remembers, that Jesus' ministry is covered up from chapter 1. We're st this is chapter 1, and he's already saying, let's go someplace else, okay? Um, la la last section, um, verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. In Judaism, it was believed that it was harder to cleanse a leper than it was to raise the dead. Cleansing a leper is a bigger deal in Jesus' day than raising the dead, in Judaism anyway. So here comes this leper. He's not supposed to be there, right? Uh, filled with compassion. Remember I said that Jesus is more emotional in Mark than any other gospel? This is one of those passages. He sees this man, and he smells this man, and he realizes how cut off he is from everyone, and he's just, it's a, it's a, it's a word that comes from uh, Greek, ancient Greek, uh, uh, and it, it's, it's the same word that describes a horse snorting. Have you, ever been, have you ever been sitting on the back of a horse and they snort and they tremble all the way down? See, I tra when I, tra I translate this, he shuddered. 
He sees this man. He just, he's filled with compassion. He just shudders. Oh, my goodness, I feel so sorry for this guy. If you're willing, you can do this for me. Oh, he reached out his hand and touched the man. You're not supposed to do that, right? What happens if you touch something that's unclean? You become unclean. This is the first time in the history of the world that a clean person touched an unclean person and the unclean person became clean. That flow got reversed in Jesus. So cleanness comes from him and transforms the life of this guy. That gives me chill bumps. Um, so filled with compassion, he shudders. The emotional Jesus shudders. He reaches out his hand, and all he's got to say is, I'm willing. Now, we don't have time to talk about it, but Mark is very interested in what I refer to as the absolute lordship of Jesus. And it is scary. Let me tell you, in Mark, Lord means Lord. Lord means Lord in Mark. Uh, and it's, it can be disturbing. Uh, in, only in Mark, when Jesus stills the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the other Gospels tell this story. But in Mark, the disciples aren't afraid of the storm. They're afraid of Jesus. Look, when you're reading tonight, look for it. Mark says, there was a great wind. Then there was a great calm. And then there was a great fear. You're in a boat with a guy who talks to the weather. Right? And there, there's no lightning bolts from his fingertips. That's not how Jesus works, right? Absolute lordship. He says to the storm, be muzzled, and it's calm. He says to a dead girl, get up. It's not Benny Hinn, right? He doesn't have to do that. He speaks. How did God create the universe? He spoke it. So Jesus just, you know, it's, and if you read of the, the accounts of other healers, there were other healers in Jesus' day, and they'd go through all, they'd have magic potions, and you, to cast out a demon, you would put herbs under someone's nose, and they would sneeze, and you would say this certain thing, and you had a ring that had a Solomon's, I mean, on and on and on and on it goes, and Jesus doesn't do any of that stuff. Why? Because his lordship is absolute, and it's still absolute. When Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, their most precious observance was Sabbath. That's the one thing they agreed on, actually, circumcision and Sabbath. That's the two things they agreed on, right? Sabbath. And that's what gets him the most trouble, right? Sabbath. He does stuff on the Sabbath, and they don't think he should be doing it. Okay, what's your dearest point of orthodoxy that's biblical and good? What's your dearest point of orthodoxy? Okay, he's Lord over that. His lordship is absolute, and it can be scary. Uh, the, the, the people, uh, Gadara, the gathering demoniac, remember what happened when they saw that this, this demoniac had been healed? What did they say to Jesus? Leave, right? This guy's kind of scary, the disturbing presence of Jesus. That's only in Mark. That's what Peter remembers. You know, people are kind of freaked out by this guy. He's not this, you know, blue-eyed, white guy who walks three inches off the ground and has an English accent, right? <laughs> He's a disturbing presence. He's a man of color, by the way, but he is a disturbing presence. And uh, I'll, stop, I'll stop there. 
So, so we, here's the emotional Jesus. He's filled with compassion. He reaches out and touches him. I'm willing, be clean immediately. Mark's favorite word. The leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus drove. Now, he, his mood changes. And the, most translations don't reflect this, but trust, just, I'll just ask you to trust me. I don't want it to be this way. It is this way, okay? Jesus drove the man, the same word that's used for driving a demon away. Jesus drove the man with a strong warning. So what happens is he gets mad. He's filled with compassion. He cleanses the guy. He sees the healing happen. And then what does he realize? This is just going to bring a, a mob of people who just want to be healed. And I'm here to preach. That's what happens. So he says, get out of here. And don't tell anybody this happened. Because he knows it's going to work against his ministry. But isn't it interesting that even though it works against his ministry, he keeps healing people. Right? Why? He's compassionate. He's got the power to do it. You know, and you know, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. Right? His healings are not signs. He's absolute Lord. Does he have to prove anything? That's part of being Lord, y'all. You don't have to prove anything. He got no rules he got to follow. You know, you hear people say, oh, Jesus could only heal people who had faith in him. He healed people who didn't even know who he was. That man you were talking about lame for 36 years, he didn't even know Jesus' name. Jesus says, get up. You're lame for 38 years. What do you do? You get the heck up. Because they ask him later, who, who was it that healed you? He had no idea. Jesus heals people and he's not even there. Go home. Your daughter's been healed. Or your servant's been healed. He heals in absentia. Why? Because his lordship is absolute. And it's still absolute. No rules. What's your dearest point of orthodoxy? Calvinism, Arminianism, I mean, what, you know, even biblical stuff. He's Lord over that. His lordship is absolute. That's, and Mark's interested in that. Okay, I'm, I'm almost done. So Jesus drove him away with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. That's Leviticus 14. It's very complicated. Trust me, you're not interested in it. Okay, so what did he do? He said, don't tell anybody, right? Is he going to do it? No, how can you not tell? Instead, verse 45, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the wilderness. Yet people still came to him from everywhere. That's the end of chapter 1. That's the end of chapter 1 in Mark. And for the rest of the time, Jesus, until his ministry begins to kind of erode, the popularity erodes later on, he starts saying things like, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That does not go over well. Right? What's his favorite synagogue sermon? Jesus goes into synagogue. What, in fact, it's his only synagogue sermon. You know what it is? That God reaches out to Gentiles before he reaches out to Jews. How do you think that goes over? Not good. 
And so you have this immediate spike in his popularity in chapter 1. But then what you see, if you're listening closely to the Word, if you're loving God by listening to His Word, you're going to hear that there's this gradual erosion of his popularity. Uh, but that's, that's, another, that's another, uh, another time. So I encourage you to, uh, to, to read Mark this weekend and, uh, and uh, look for some of these things. Look for Peter. Look for the disturbing presence of Jesus and some of these other things. Okay? God bless you guys. Thanks.